Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, or if you're on a phone, or um, you can look it up online, uh, we're going to be looking uh, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 5 to 8. Okay, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, okay? Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 to 8. This is the reading of God's word. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Amen. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know, uh, today marks the beginning of Advent. And Advent is a season observed by Christians uh, all over the world that begins four Sundays before Christmas. Um, and that word Advent in Latin literally means coming. Okay, and this season is meant to mark a period of waiting and preparation, uh, not only to celebrate the birth of Christ, but also to look forward to his second coming. And so, uh, in light of that, I thought it'd be great for us to do a short four-week Advent series around how the birth of Christ uh, speaks to various themes in our faith. And today we're going to look at hope, and then we have a couple great guest speakers lined up who are going to speak on adoption and community, and then I'm going to be closing out the series on Christmas Sunday talking about uh, peace, okay? But today we're going to talk about hope, and of the many things uh, Christmas symbolizes for believers, I would say one of the most important things it symbolizes is hope. Um, and I think that hits a little differently for us this year because, you know, it's hard to remember another year in our lifetime when it felt like collectively we were all uh, this starved for hope. You know, the fact that uh, suicide and depression rates are at an all-time high right now um, should tell you that people more than ever are feeling completely hopeless. You know, and, and hopelessness looks different for everyone. Uh, for some of us, hopelessness sets in when we're feeling lonely or unwanted or abandoned. Uh, you know, when we feel like nobody understands what we're going through, when we feel like even our family and our closest friends don't get it. For some of us, hopelessness sets in, um, you know, when we see our lives spinning out of control, right? When you see your marriage start to unravel, when you see the business or the career you gave your entire life to gone in an instant. Um, for some of us, uh, hopelessness sets in, you know, when you're unable to keep up at work, you know, or perform uh, because you're trying to figure out virtual education for your kids or you're taking care of your parents or you're grieving the loss of, lo of a loved one. I think for a lot of us, hopelessness sets in when we look out at the world, you know, and we see just how divided and hateful and broken we are as a humanity. You know, when we see violence and injustice continue to persist, uh, particularly for people of color, um, you know, and, and just, I mean, for me personally, watching the news often makes me feel hopeless. You know, this week uh, we saw 
um, you know, I, I saw that uh, there was a day that uh, reported the highest death tolls for COVID since May, you know, and, and, you know, I think even this past election, you know, which we all assumed would inject some hope into our nation. Like I've been talking to a lot of people on both sides who tell me they're just as hopeless as they were before the election. You know, conservatives feel hopeless because they think woke liberals are running this country into the ground. Liberals feel hopeless because in an election they, that they thought was, you know, should have been a landslide, they realize that still half the country doesn't agree with them. Okay. And people are losing their minds right now because if you don't believe in a God, who are you going to run to um, for hope? You're going to turn to the next highest authority, which is government. Right. But what do you do when even the government, even politics doesn't give us that assurance? Where are you going to find a robust, lasting hope? And that's the question our text today is posing. Okay, Uh, for some context, Jeremiah, he's writing to a people who've been exiled in Babylon for their sin and disobedience to God, who've had their lives and their world turned upside down, who throughout this book are staring hopelessness in the face And he's saying, where will you find your hope? Is it going to be in politicians? Is it going to be in the economy? Is it going to be in a relationship? Or is it going to be in God? Because he says, those who trust in mere humans are cursed. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. But those who have made the Lord their hope and confidence are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Um, you know, of the many things that uh, 2020 exposed, I would say one of the biggest things it exposed was our false hope in human progress, okay? A quick history lesson for us. Most ancient civilizations, they operated under the premise of karma, okay? That everything in life is cyclical. What goes around comes around. History always repeats itself. And this is important because... This impacted people's views of right and wrong. Okay, like um, we, I think we think that uh, everyone is just born with a moral compass. You know that when 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 you see someone suffering, that it's natural for us to just look at that and want to do something about it. Well, in ancient civilizations that operated with this view of karma, there was no moral imperative for something like social justice. There, like, there was no point in trying to make life better for someone else because everyone believed you were where you were because you deserved it. Like you or your family did something in the past um, that came back to haunt them later. So, you know, you would look at someone suffering in poverty or homelessness and you would say, well, I mean, what goes around comes around. Well, Christianity comes on the scene and it's the first worldview in history uh, that says life is is not cyclical, but that it's progressing in a linear fashion, that there is a brighter future. You know, it, it was this idea that, you know, uh, we as a society were moving towards something better. 
Like when Jesus comes into the world and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's basically saying the world is never going to be the same. And, and it's progressing to this final day when he's going to return and restore everything that's been broken by the curse. And so this idea that society is pro progressing toward a utopian future, that's a Christian idea. Okay, well, fast forward to the Enlightenment, people start to say, you know what? I like that idea. I think we are progressing toward a brighter future, but I don't think we need God to do it. We're rational, smart, intellectual human beings. Um, we don't need God. As long as we gain more knowledge, we're just going to naturally progress as a society. So in other words, the more enlightened we become, or in modern terminology, the more woke we become, the more we will progress as a society. And somewhere along the line, we said, give us the kingdom without the king. We started talking about liberty and inclusion and love, which were all Christian values, but we decided we don't need Jesus to show us what these things mean. So we started to create and innovate and build this kingdom thinking that as long as we became smarter, as long as we kept gaining knowledge, our society would continue to progress, okay? And that was where we placed our hope. And that hope, I would say, sustained us till about the 1900s, and then we all know what happened. World War I happened. The Great Depression happened. World War II happened. Nuclear weapons happened, okay? And people were like, what is going on? Because this isn't supposed to happen. Knowledge and progress are supposed to help us, not destroy us, right? And what people didn't realize was that the real problem wasn't out there, it was in here, right? They didn't realize that all the progress and all the knowledge in the world is meaningless as long as people are still broken, right? As long as the people wielding that knowledge are still broken. And I want you to think about it, right? When social media first came on the scene, it was a ray of hope for humanity. I remember they touted it as like this um, amazing thing that was going to, uh, you know, unite people, reunite people who'd been separated from their family and friends. You now had a way of connecting with people all around the globe and have access to information you never dreamed of. And yet... Ask any psychiatrist or social scientist to name the one thing they think is ruining the fabric of our society, and most likely they're going to say social media, okay? You see what I'm getting at here? For all our technological advancements, for all our knowledge and experience, 2020 honestly does not look that different from 1920. We're still killing people. Uh, the economy is still on shaky ground. We're still dealing with pandemics, pandemics that are actually worse now because of globalization. And it's exactly what Jeremiah 17 says. We're cursed because we've put our trust in mere humans. Okay. Well, what then does it look like to put our hope in God? And, and here's what it's not. Okay. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not naive optimism. People often confuse hope with optimism. Like optimism is telling yourself things are going to be great, even though they're not. It's the look on the bright side mentality. It's the let's knock on wood mentality, right? It's the expectant parent who's like, you know what? It's not going to be that bad. No, 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 no. It's going to be bad. 
It's going to be really rough. Okay. Um, it like optimism is wanting a positive outcome without any real evidence that that outcome is going to occur. Like I say, I hope my kids grow up healthy. But when I really think about it, that's actually not hope. That's optimism. You know, it's something I want to believe, but there's no evidence that guarantees me that my kids will grow up healthy. You know, like I've read too many stories and I've met too many people whose kids who were otherwise perfectly healthy suddenly contracted a rare disorder or suffered a terrible accident. You know, we can say, I hope this pandemic ends in 2021. And yes, the vaccine looks very promising and we're all longing for that. But I mean, we've had enough letdowns in 2020 to know we're not sure. You know, like you, you know, you may say you hope your business succeeds or your investments yield high returns, but that's actually not hope. It's not rooted in reality. No matter how much work you put in or how foolproof you think your method is, you know, deep down, it's still just wishful thinking because we've all been through 08. We've now all been through 2020. We know we can't predict everything that happens, right? Um, many of you know I'm a diehard Eagles fan, and it's very tough, okay, to be an Eagles fan. Um, yes, we did finally win a Super Bowl a few years ago, and that was amazing. That felt great, but um, it wasn't always like that, okay? Like, you have to understand how agonizing and traumatizing it is to root for a team that year after year always loses, okay? Uh, I was living in Philly when we went to four straight NFC Championship games as the favorite, okay? So when ESPN uh, brings out all their analysts and they come out and do their predictions, everyone always chose Philly. We lost all four, okay? And then when we finally got to the Super Bowl, we lost that too, okay? And every year we said, let's hope for the best, okay? But let's be honest, that wasn't real hope, okay? Because we had zero confidence in our team. It was just wishful thinking. Okay, it was denying reality. It was like playing the lotto. It, you know, you, most likely you're going to lose, but knock on wood, like maybe we'll win, right? Because when a team fails you over and over again, you can say you hope they win, but that hope is, as Jeremiah says, nothing more than a stunted shrub in the desert. It's a shallow hope, okay? Now, uh, obviously, don't get me wrong. You know, it's not bad to hope for certain things, right? It's not bad to hope God heals your depression. It's not bad to hope God blesses you with a job. And, and we should praise God when he grants us these things. But our ultimate hope can't be in an outcome or a circumstance or else we're never going to be endure not being healed. We're never going to be able to endure not getting the job we want. We can only endure these things if we believe in a God who we know with certainty will not forget or abandon us. In other words, like even when we don't receive what we hope for, we can always stand firm in the one we hope in. Okay, let me say that again. Even if we don't receive what we hope for, we can always stand firm in the one we hope in. Our health may fail. 
Our relationships and careers may fail, but God will not fail, and you can bet your life on that. You know, at the end of the day, the biggest difference between optimism and true hope is that optimism is based on circumstances, whereas hope is rooted in the character of God. It's being able to say God is good when your circumstances are great and when your circumstances are dire. Um, in Hebrews 6, Paul writes this, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This means that in our lowest moments, when we're down to nothing, we can be 100% certain that God is up to something. Right? In fact, it's the moments of our greatest hopelessness that true hope is born because when you say you're hopeless, what are you saying? You're saying, there's nothing more I can do to fix my life. So God, you have to do it. You know, Sarah was childless until she was 90. You know, like every time I read that story, I'm like, did it have to be 90? Like it would have been a miracle at 60. Yet God had her wait until she was 90. Lazarus was dead four days when Jesus came on the scene. That's longer than Jesus was dead, okay? He was dead four days. And it's as if God allowed a situation to become so utterly hopeless that people had nothing left to cling to but God himself. You know, the world Jesus was born into was more hopeless and dark than any of us could ever imagine. You had people living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. You had division. You had poverty. You had hostility. You had political tension. Very similar to the world we're living in right now. The word of God had not been heard for over four centuries. Okay? 4,000 years. So as far as people were concerned, God was silent. Okay? And given that, you would think God would make this triumphant entrance into the narrative, right? And yet what you get at the, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is very anticlimactic. What you get in that opening scene is this couple, Mary and Joseph. Poor, insignificant family who can't even afford a room at an inn. And honestly, you're, you're thinking, what are they doing in this story? Like, they don't belong in this narrative. And yet, isn't it so like God to use what we would consider a hopeless situation to bring hope into the world? As if to make it crystal clear that true hope isn't rooted in wealth or fame or status. It's rooted in who God is. And this isn't just the way Jesus is born. This is also the way Jesus dies. If you think about it, Jesus' death is a picture of utter hopelessness. He's naked. He's beaten to a pulp. Nothing to his name. He's abandoned by all his friends. He's alone. He's humiliated. It's the promised Messiah hanging on a cross. And people are probably looking up thinking, 
is this what we were hoping for? You know, is this what we've been waiting for all this time, not knowing that in three days God would raise Jesus from the dead, fully delivering on every one of his promises? This is our hope. It's God's guarantee that nothing will ever separate us from his love. And so in those moments in our lives, when we find ourselves saying, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, God says, you may not know how, but you know who. You know me. You know what I've done. You know, when Jesus came into the world, it was like someone lit a match in a dark tunnel. Right? You still didn't know where the end of the tunnel was, but you had light for the first time. And it was just bright enough to reveal the path ahead, just bright enough to give you the assurance that you were going to find your way out. And that's what hope in God looks like. You know, sometimes it's just a match. You often don't know how or when you're going to get through whatever it is you're going through, but that match gives you just enough light for you to be able to take the next faithful step. And the thing is, we know that even a match can swallow darkness whole. Um, you know, I want to share a story I read a few years ago. And um, it was about a couple uh, who had four kids. Their first child was healthy. Um, but their second child, Mary Lou, uh, was born with a rare blood disorder called Cooley's anemia. Okay, which basically uh, prevents the body from being able to carry oxygen from the lungs to body tissues and muscles. Okay, and so from the day this child was born, um, she would have to go to this clinic regularly to get blood transfusions, and that just became a part of her life. And um, fast forward a couple years, and this couple is thinking about getting pregnant again with a third, and they go to the doctor, and they say, look, uh, if this is genetic, you know, is it worth it for us to have another baby, you know, or should we be worried? And the doctor says, no, very little chance that you would see this twice in the same family. Well, lo and behold, they have their third child, a daughter named Rosemary. And a few months after she's born, she too diagnosed with Cooley's anemia. Okay. So now you have this couple taking both daughters for pretty much their entire childhood to get blood transfusions um, that they're going to have to get for the rest of their lives. And uh, uh, fast forward a few more years, you know, they have three daughters. So this child, you know, they're like, you know, what the heck? Let's go for the fourth. Maybe we'll get a son. And they go to the doctor again. And they say, look, we're, we're going to try for a son. You said it was the chances were rare with our third. What would you say about the fourth? And doctor said, I mean... I kind of misread that, but for sure, the chances are nil that the fourth would have this blood disorder too. Well, this mom is writing this story and she says her son, uh, they did have a son, George, who's born and she's holding him in the hospital and she says immediately from the first moment she held him, she knew he had it too. Like she could tell by the paleness of his skin and so now you have three children all having to get blood transfusions basically for the rest of their lives. And one day, their entire family is waiting at this hospital, and one of her kids hands her a copy of the New York Times, and the headline that day says, Fatal Blood Disorder. 
And it's actually an article about Cooley's anemia. And it's actually an article um, profiling children at that same clinic. Okay. Um, and sadly, the article is about how all those children died before the age of 20. And this mom takes this newspaper article, goes to the doctor and says, you know, you never told me this. You know, is this true? And the doctor says, you know, I'm afraid it is. You know, there, there still is no cure. And it's impossible for a child with this disorder to live beyond that age. And obviously, this family is heartbroken and devastated because, you know, all their kids are, are old enough by this point to understand what the article is saying, to understand what's happening. And um, they're just trying to navigate this day by day. And one day, this mom walks into her third daughter, Rosemary's room. And Rosemary is 11 at the time. And she's sitting there making jewelry and pins um, that she's been selling at these craft shows, right? Um, and her mom is like, you know, this is awesome, but, you know, why are you doing this? And Rosemary says, um, I'm saving up for college, uh, because I want to be a nurse. You know, I want to be like those women at the hospital who help me. And this mom is like, what hope is my daughter holding on to? Like, she read the same article I read. Why is she talking about college? Why is she talking about life after college? And then she looks up, and in Rosemary's room, there's this plaque hanging on the wall. And it's a plaque Rosemary made. And she'd stitched this Bible verse on it, and it says, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And to this mom, it was a picture of true hope. Um, Rosemary was not delusional. She knew very well the statistics. She was old enough to understand what the article had said. But it was this moment when the mom realized that Rosemary's hope was in a God who she knew held her life in the palm of his hand. And she lived every day not dwelling on the hopelessness that others felt for her, but she lived every day with true, unshakable hope, receiving each day as a gift from her Father in heaven. Well, sadly, just one year after her mom found Rosemary in her room making jewelry, Rosemary died. And you would think this would have completely crippled the other two kids, you know, who had Cooley's anemia, Mary Lou and George. You know, it's one thing to know, like, that, you know, based on the statistics that your life is going to be cut short. Uh, it's another thing to have to lose your sister and then basically face that reality head on every day. And yet this mom writes, both Mary Lou and George somehow approached their lives with the same vitality that Rosemary did. Mary Lou graduated high school with honors. She made the dean's list in college. She volunteered for charities all around the community. And George, same thing. After graduation, he worked at a restaurant to save up for his dream car, which he bought and he took care of meticulously. Um, and, and sadly, both of them went to be with the Lord at the age of 19. You know, uh, it's, they both um, died in, the, in, in, in what the statistics told them. 
And this mom is writing, on the night George died, she says that he knew it was his time. And his last words to his mom were, promise me 